0: Hello everyone and welcome to Dairy Pod. It's a special Dairy Pod today in more ways than one. Firstly, it's my final episode in the host chair as I'm now moving on from Dairy Australia to Pastures New. It's been a great pleasure to be a part of this podcast since we commenced back in 2019 with John Mulvaney talking in that first episode about marginal milk production on dairy farms. Since we launched the podcast initially at Gibbs Dairy before continuing it at Dairy Australia, Myself and producer Danny Butler have always had just one thought in mind when selecting guests and topics and that's how can we help farmers run better businesses. We have tried to produce honest conversations that delve into the pros and cons of the given topic being discussed without any hidden agendas and with a range of people in the dairy industry including consultants, technical experts and farmers all participating as guests. At times the quality of the recordings taken in many farmer kitchen tables farm offices, youths, on Zoom or even a couple of times in dairy sheds might have sounded a little unpolished or raw but the content has always tried to avoid being a marketing vehicle for any specific organisations or products and instead just simple to have honest conversations with farmers best interests at heart. Indeed the episodes where farmers have come on to describe how they run their own businesses profitably and the benefits and challenges of their chosen approach have been amongst the most popular with listeners and most enjoyable to be recording. With both Danny and myself leaving DA, this will be the last dairy pod that we produce for Dairy Australia. The podcast will continue however to be produced by DA. It remains a podcast primarily designed to help farmers improve the running of their business through honest informative conversations. In the spirit of robust debate then, for this episode I'm thrilled to say we're joined by one of the industry's best known consultants as our special guest. Phil Shannon is based in northern Victoria and has been consulting to farmers for many years now across several parts of Australia. Phil's known as a straight shooter when it comes to farm business systems, and indeed, he and I have had many interesting debates about profitable farming systems over the last few years. With some farms considering a switch towards more intensive dairy farm systems for a number of reasons, we thought it would be a great to chance to hear what Phil has to say on the pros and cons of dairy farm intensification how and why this trend has come about for some farmers in recent years, and what he still feels is an untapped potential for growth and improvements in existing grazing systems. Phil, it's great to have you along here today. Thanks, Rory. Good to be here. Phil, you've defined a system as a set of things working together as part of a mechanism or an interconnecting network, which is a complex whole composition. Um, can you explain that in a little more detail and how it um, applies to a dairy farming system?
1: Uh, yeah, it's, it's it sounds a little guffy all those words, but um, I think most farmers understand what a system is. They, they could, because they they've generated their own farming system. So there's lots of parts to the system. There's the cows, the where the feed comes, feeding area, how they're milk, There's the labour component. So a lot goes into a farming system, and I, I think one of the challenges is we've we've put a lot of effort into trying to box systems into groups. I think Dairy Australia uses the the one to five system. Um, I don't, um, from a farmer's perspective, I don't think it's as useful to box them. Most farmers understand that they they've developed a system over time that suits themselves. I think the important thing with the farming system um, is just understanding the extremes. At at one end, we've got farmers that are what we class as intensive, that um, aren't afraid to be very dependent on buying feed from other people and aim for high production and high feed conversion efficiency, Um, and at the other end, we have the perception of the controlled starvation, you know, the New Zealand type farmer that won't let their cows have any grain. So systems are, to to me, systems are all about um, everything that makes up um, how the cows get fed and how they're managed on the farm.
0: Yeah, I know. I think you made some good points there, Phil. And I suppose from an Australian context, uh, it might be worth talking a little bit more about what do you think are the biggest factors that that differentiate dairy farming systems within Australia? I mean, you mentioned the feed component there from the, the New Zealand style low grain input system one as, as classified in the um, in the Dairy Australia's five feeding systems classifications through to the TMR style US systems. So would you say that feed is the biggest factor that the level of, of, of concentrate or the level of feeding is the biggest factor or what are the other major factors that differentiate dairy farming systems in your view?
1: Yeah, when you have a conversation with farming groups, often when you talk about systems, it jumps straight to high input, big Holsteins, you know, lots of litres per cow. And the other end is, you know, they're called the grass-based farmers. Um, To me, it's it's not that healthy to to box and look at the ends. It's really about understanding why people do what they do. I I have a a clear belief that most farmers are, are smart and they don't run a farming system that uh, they don't think is the most profitable. So when we get the opportunity as a group to discuss farming systems to learn from each other, unfortunately, often it becomes a defending of turf. You know, people trying to defend, oh, I'm, I'm high input. Um, yeah, I, I, I can justify my mixer wagon and my feed pad because of feed conversion efficiency. Um, and at the other end, you have the one saying, oh, I don't. I'm not dependent on grain. It doesn't matter what happens with grain and milk price, I'm fairly resilient. To me, the farming system discussion is a much better one when farmers are asking each other, why do you do what you do? I'm not doing anything like you, but I'd love to know what drives you.
0: You know, I've seen some very heated discussions with farmers over the years where, you know, one person might be feeding two and a half tons of grain per cow and really striving for high milk production and find themselves in, in a group situation really on the defense of defending that system and, and equally so someone who you know, has a a very New Zealand style, doesn't feed any grain or very minimal amount of grain. Um, Why do you think the in Australia it's become like that or or that type of, uh, those types of discussions have taken place over the last 20 or 30 years or probably even longer?
1: Um, I I think it comes down to, volatility is a a strange word, but in Australia, I think we're often impacted by large fluctuations in milk price and feed price. Feed price not only purchased feed, but it doesn't rain so you don't grow as much grass so your actual homegrown feed becomes quite as expensive as well. So farmers are impacted by the conditions they've been through. Um, and I, as, as an example, Um, Some farmers have been bitten so badly through drought that they really don't want high cow numbers and pushing production and be exposed to to milk price. So they, um, you'd almost call them conservative. Um, Yet others have seen the advantages of supplying certain milk companies that pay on average a higher price. Um, They've been through the era where they could buy co-products and run a mixer wagon and get really high production and high margins. the, the challenge is, Ruri, in Australia, that it does fluctuate a lot and, and not all systems can be equally profitable every year. So farmers tend to get drawn towards the system where they had the good experiences. Um, but more importantly, Ruri, uh, its farming system should be about where you see the future because it's constantly changing. And so um, we see in Northern Victoria, as an example, where I'm from, massive change going on because farmers are grappling with the fact that what used to be relatively cheap homegrown feed through the use of irrigation water has changed. So, we are seeing farmers shift towards trying to find a way to cope with the fact that that cheap feed isn't around anymore. Um, in years when the dam's full, um, there's still competition for water, so the cost of that homegrown feed's gone up. So, farming systems are constantly um, diversifying, brewery. Um, I just wanted to make a, a comment about um, Bill Malcolm. I always think of Bill Malcolm when I'm talking about farming systems because he um, often says quite simply about the future Phil, uh, we simply do not know. So farmers are, are trying to design systems to handle future conditions. And the biggest challenge I think with farming systems is when you make that leap. And, and what I call a leap in a farming system is when you invest money in something, that you can't take away in the following year. So a farmer makes the decision that they're now, um, they see a future with very high milk prices in comparison to feed prices. Uh, quite rightly, if that's the way they see it, they wanna focus on high feed conversion efficiency and high milk production. And so they'll they will they'll gravitate towards a more intensive farming system. And normally that system will involve heavy investment in infrastructure to feed cows and, and we're seeing Um, a slight change where farmers are are housing and roofing cows. We've always had mixing of feeds and presenting that on feed pads, but now we're seeing cows in houses, not grazing. So I think that's a good example of farmers will respond to what they see.
0: You've touched on a couple of points there. For those who don't know, Bill Malcolm is um, an agricultural economics professor at Melbourne University and someone who would be pretty good authority on on the change in farming systems as well over the last... Probably thirty or forty years, even. It's worth probably delving a little bit deeper into the intensity there. You mentioned, you know, how farmers that um, will look to take advantage of more favourable conditions around milk price and and feed price and stuff like that, and become more intensive. But do you think that lends itself to a greater level of risk as well? And how much does the individual's attitude to risk come into the picture?
1: Risk is a good way to look at. It. I know that Dairy Australia and, and and other people have had. Um, spent a lot of time analysing historic data on risk. Um, If there was a clear trend that said one system was far more favourable than another, I'm sure farmers would gravitate that way. I think a good example of that Ruri is you visit New Zealand and the majority of farmers are, are what we would class as grazing based and don't feed much supplement at all other than feeding back the forage that they make themselves And and that's a consequence of what they're exposed to most of the time, relatively low milk prices um, and sometimes prohibitively expensive purchase feed prices. If you look in Australia, um, it's it's almost the opposite. We have periods where it's like that, but then we have other periods where um, grain and feed is relatively cheap and irrigation water is cheap and milk price is really high. And so that attracts you to move towards a more intensive system. And one of the things we see on farm is, is what, we, what I would think is, um, in always called it systems creep. And it's where a farmer um, is plodding along quite nicely, running a really good solid farm system. Um, but for some circumstances, usually it's good conditions. They decide they've got a few more heifers coming through. So they'll milk a few more cows because the milk price is good and feeds relatively cheap. So they milk a few more until the point where um, the dairy won't quite cope with that cow number. So they invest in upgrading the dairy. Now that's that's just a little change and it's quite a normal response to make the most of the best conditions. They feed a little bit more. The issue with the change to the dairy is if in the following year, the milk price drops and feed becomes more expensive, their little creep has become a leap because you can't not use the capital that's invested in the dairy. Um, So the dairy is a, a small example a bigger example would be a farmer that um, feels like they, they need to keep pushing things along. So now they're buying in more feed per cow because they're buying in more feed per cow. Naturally, there's a higher percentage of the feed that's wasted. And so it seems to make sense that I need to invest in some kind of waste management facilities. So it's just a, a creep. But that creep is taking them towards what we would define as a, a more intensive system all the time. They're becoming more uh, more of their cattles caught up in feeding cows well and stopping waste.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good point to, to expand a bit more on, Phil. So you mentioned earlier that you know when you get the system creep, it's usually from a more less intensive system towards a more intensive system. You, the creep is normally in in the direction of becoming more intensive, would you say? Yeah, and
1: actually this is probably a good time to discuss um, this word that I I don't like too much, um, brewery flexibility. Um, The reason why I don't like it, I'm I'm very, um, uh, whenever I get the chance, I I ask someone who uses the word flexibility pretty flippantly, I say, what is is this flexibility thing? I think we overstated and it makes farmers feel a little bit like they should have a flexible farming system. Um, I'm still yet to see too many of these flexible farming systems. I know farmers can swap or um, feeds in and out. If you've got a mixer wagon, you can use more feeds, but it's not it's not that flexible in that you've, when you don't want to use the mixer wagon, it's still there. You still had to buy it. You've still got capital tied up in it. So yeah. the, the notion of flexibility, I think sometimes makes farmers feel a little bit inadequate in that, oh, I haven't got one of those flexible farming systems. To me, when things turn really tough, it's really difficult to, to uninvest. So when we get back to talking about systems creep, in most cases, systems creep does involve starting to invest something that's not flexible. So I make a decision to upgrade the dairy and it, the bank doesn't say in years um, when I don't need to milk that many cows, oh, you can have some money back for the dairy, part of the dairy you're not using or more a more concrete example is the feed pad. You're not using it this year, so only pay for half of it or pay interest on half it. So the creep can limit flexibility because you're investing in things that when the alternate conditions turn around, you can't use them.
0: You can't utilise them as well as you'd like. Something like a, a move from a, a grazing system to a um, fully housed system or a freestyled barn, et cetera, wouldn't, wouldn't really, might not... Might not be system creep. That might be something even more than that. That's a total systems change. But the same principle still applies, though, that you can't undo that again. You know, if if time turns bad, I think the analogy, the, the description you made around the bank saying, "Oh well, look, you're you're not using you're not using that extra investment this year, so you don't have to pay interest on that part." That's not realistic in practice, is it?
1: No, and that, and that's the challenge. Where really, is um, when I when I talk to groups about farming systems that most of the focus is um, is on the things that you can't reverse. So it's when you invest more capital. I, we often talk about mixer wagon and I, I think some people think the mixer wagon defines the system. To me, mixer wagon is just a tool. It's just one way you can feed out. You can have a silage cart or a, a round bale buggy. Um, mixer wagon is just another tool, but some people tend to think that the mixer wagon defines the system um, to me. We'll probably see more and more mixer wagons in Northern Victoria as farmers do intensify in response to the fact that they seem to be having a better milk price now. Um, and the irrigation water means that there's highly likely to be more of the feed that they can serve needs to be reprocessed and fed back out again. So that's an example of a, a systems change. Uh, the wagon could be part of the creep. Oh, well, I needed to mix a couple of feed sources this year. So I'll buy myself a, a wagon to mix them. Um, and if conditions the following year are better and you don't need the wagon, you don't have to use it. Uh, the issue comes really when people then become addicted to it. So they've mm. got the wagon and they you ask them, how many days of the year did you park it in the shed and not use it? Um, and often the answer is, oh, it's pretty handy just to get a bit of fibre into them or just to. So um, farmers do go from a creep to a leap because now I've got the mixer wagon and I've got some maize silage and I can't feed that out on the ground. So um, I'll have to invest in some type of pad. Um, And feed out areas, uh, Ruri are quite complex because it's really difficult to get a a relatively cheap and effective feed out area. It's hard to decide when to stop. Do Do I just have an earthen pad and use it sometimes right up to the end of concrete troughs to minimize waste and concrete alleyway to always have access to wet conditions
0: so phil a lot of people would question what is the most profitable system and i guess there's no there's no simple answer to that as you've already kind of articulated but um you you do have some concerns about the use of historical data as the kind of be all and end all to define differences in profitability between systems do you want to expand on that a little bit more
1: yeah it's 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 an interesting one and remember i um i'm a very strong on encouraging people to do a historic business analysis it's a great way to check that um, you know from what I did on my farm last year given the conditions what was the result I got it's hard in that data to account for the skill of the manager you know most people know that the skill of the manager is critical so you can have the right system and the right conditions with a poor manager and get a bad result and vice versa so it's it's Difficult to interpret the context of the data and the context is critical. If it was a run of years when the externalities favoured one system over another, so an example, uh, we went through a purple patch where milk price was really high and it rained at the perfect time and there was plenty of cheap feed.
0: A bit like at the minute.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The intensive system is going to look really good and so it might give you a false sense of security that, oh, I'm missing out. I better invest in a feed pad and I better invest in intensification. It can vary, as we know, it can very quickly change the other way and you've made a mistake. So although the historic data might indicate that it was fine, it's about the future. So there's the fact that history isn't always a strong predictor of the future, unfortunately, Ruri. Um, Northern Victoria, again, I keep quoting it, but it, I think it's a really good example of a fundamental change in farming systems that's required because there is now much stronger competition for the limited water that's available. When I look at Gippsland and the Western districts in terms of water availability, our rainfall patterns may change, but they've changed forever. We haven't seen a massive change in Western districts in Gippsland because the force isn't there because the fundamental hasn't changed. Whereas in Northern Victoria, I think farmers are still grappling with what does the future look like? And as we talked about earlier, one of the biggest challenges is once you've once you've invested in something and, and moved towards intensification, it's very difficult to uninvest. And we are seeing farmers heading down that path. I'm, I'm very comfortable with a lot of the farmers that are moving that way. I think when I talk to them and they express how they feel about where milk price is heading, given some fundamental, what, what they call fundamental changes. I'm not quite sure myself about milk price yet, Ruri, but The way they see themselves using their water more intensely over a shorter period of the year to grow more feed, which means that they will need to reprocess that feed and present it back to the cows. For me, it's ticking all the boxes saying, yes, if you're going to stay in Northern Victoria and continue to milk cows, uh, it, it makes good logical sense that you'll probably move towards a more intensive
0: type system. Just dwelling on Northern Victoria for a little bit, Phil, what do you think are the biggest kind of risks or challenges to the farmers who are choosing to move in that direction over the next decade or even beyond that? Let's, let's, you know, throw it out to 2040 even, you know, think about, we hear a lot of talk about climate volatility and, and other aspects and, you know, is there a kind of in your opinion, what are the longer term challenges for someone investing in in, in intensification, I suppose, uh, of a system like this?
1: At the moment, as you know, the dairy industry in Australia, I think, is going through a a, a purple patch, given all the ducks have lined up. We've, we're getting rainfall at the right time. The dams are full for irrigation water, milk prices um, at all near record highs, um, and stock, stock prices are, are phenomenal. So for anyone who's in dairy, um, it's really, it's, it's really quite good. The temptation is to, is to not look at history and, and just start now focusing on saying, right, this is the new future, higher milk prices. Um, and so there is a real temptation that when there's plenty of cash around to use some of that cash to move towards intensification. To me, the challenge comes back to that word flexibility, Ruri, which is if it does change quickly and you've invested all that money in intense system, and so you start to generate um, a lot of additional milk that's what I would term marginal milk. Um, I better be careful with marginal milk because it seems to have got itself lots of different definitions. My, yeah,
0: we've, we've my, talked like, about marginal milk on this podcast in the past with, uh, with John Mulvaney, who I know is someone you've uh, worked with closely, but you are correct. There are several different interpretations or definitions. Yeah. So
1: I'll, I'll define, to me, marginal milk is, it, it might be the milk that comes out of those last 10 or 20 cows that you've purchased that's quite profitable this year because of the conditions, usually the milk to feed price ratio. The challenge is um, if conditions change, is it still worth milking those marginal cows to get that marginal milk? And the challenge is as you intensify, it's, it seems to be harder to make the decision that I'll actually destock a bit, I'll milk a few less cows because you've got the facilities to manage them. And, and so that becomes a real risk. So in Northern Vic, I think quite logically, we're seeing people intensify, but I don't think it's intensification as, as much as the how we would originally think about it in, in grazing systems where you're running a higher stocking rate. I think the intensification is more about how we house and feed the cows. So a really interesting figure to keep watching. Um, Brewery is homegrown feed per cow. Um, I may have this wrong, but I, I seem to notice in the dairy farm monitor data trend that homegrown feed per cow I thought would have um, dropped off in northern Victoria, but it seems to be stabilised. Mainly because that more of that feed is now grown and reprocessed and fed back to the cow, so the proportion might be staying the same. The interesting figure to look at for any farmer in their data is the cost of it. So we all know now that to get a contractor in and chop a crop and get it in the pit and get it covered is probably adding about $90. So um, that adds a fair bit of margin, nine cents a kilo dry matter that somehow
0: you've got to get back out. That's probably even uh, on the, on the conservative side in your estimate, some people would argue, Phil. Would you think that obviously, you know, the homegrown feed has remained the same and I haven't, I have to admit, I haven't looked at the dairy farm monitor data for, for this year in much in the detail that you have. But um, would you say that the proportion of grazed and ungrazed has is tending in, in in somewhere like northern Victoria to become, you know, more even or or more heading towards that conserved component that that might not actually be grazed directly, but is actually processed and stored on the farm and then refed back, you know, and of course that adds extra cost as well. Yeah, I um, I can't quote data
1: um, Rory because I haven't been through it in that detail. I'm looking forward to when I get a chance this year, um. But we certainly, logic would say that more of the far feed in Northern Victoria is being conserved and fed back to cows. Um, and that makes it interesting in terms of it's then much easier to justify um, from a, either a payback sense or a return on extra capital um, an investment in a, a feeding facility because waste is, is a big factor. And if you multiply waste by cost of feed, it starts to become exponential in terms of, Um, you're almost forced to invest in some kind of waste control facility because to not control waste becomes more expensive than controlling it. So I think we are quite rightly seeing a trend of more farmers investing in feeding areas in Northern Vic. Um, The challenge is the flexibility thing. Once they're there, it's very hard to not use them. It's very tempting to just go, well, it's a tight year this year, but I'll just buy a bit more feed and keep producing that milk.
0: So what you're saying there, Phil, is that there could potentially come a point, or maybe this has already happened to farmers in the past, where it's not in your best interest to use something that you may have invested in three years ago at that given moment, but you almost feel obliged to do so because I bought it. so I got to use it. Even though at that particular moment in time, if the, feed price changed and the milk price changed and it wasn't as favorable, it may actually be in your best interest to not use that particular piece of infrastructure that that was a profitable investment you know, a few years ago or a couple of years ago when when conditions were different. Would that be fair to say? Um, yeah, and
1: and if you've got it, it doesn't make sense not to use it, Ruri. So if you've got a concrete feed pad um, that you can feed out with little or no waste or, or minimise waste, then if you've got it, you may as well use it regardless. The question is the capital's already spent, so you can't use that capital for another purpose in a tight year. Um, so I, it, it's the flexibility that's the really difficult thing is it, it allows you to use different feeds, but it's, it, it, in terms of true flexibility, it's very hard to um, reuse that capital when you need it for something else.
0: Yeah, you mentioned earlier, I thought it was interesting, worth touching on as well, the traditional kind of definition of intensification was just staying within the grazing system per putting more cows on and having a higher stocking rate. So, you know, there are, there are, there are instances where a lot of farmers would still do that and, and it would be the profitable and correct thing to do. Um, you want to expand on that a little bit as well? 20 years ago when I was um,
1: younger with less grey hair, Um, Intensification was the farmers that were pushing the boundaries to me uh, there weren't many that were housing cows or doing things like that, Um, they were were way on the outer. But there were farmers that were pushing the boundaries um, and we we said they were intensifying and what we really were saying is they were were increasing their stocking rate. And there were farmers that had potential to grow more grass by using nitrogen and improving their grazing management. they weren't actually intensifying. They were just adding cows to match the grass that they were growing. And so some of their neighbors might've thought, holy cow, they're milking three or four cows a hectare. They're really intense. Um, All they were doing was moving their cow number up to match their homegrown feed growth. So traditionally that was intensification. I think now we see a very different intensification where it's got nothing to do with land area or cows per hectare. It's, It's how many cows are they stocking, stacking on.
0: Yeah, but I suppose you could argue that there is still that opportunity that you just described there, and you might say 20 years ago, but that, that still exists, I would argue, on a lot of farms uh, in Australia. If you're, for example, someone who is, um, you know, the I think the average pasture utilization is around seven or eight tons of dry matter per hectare, but there are farmers able to do 12 or 13 or even higher. Um, so if you were a farmer who was able to improve the amount of grazed and homegrown feed, you'd you were able to grow through things like better grazing management and better use of fertilizers and stuff like that it would make sense to max out that particular aspect of intensification would it before you would consider bigger systems change or a system leap i suppose would, would that would that be a fair thing to say
1: yeah we, we've talked about this many times really that um when, when you see what some farmers are achieving in terms of pasture harvest in the same district and you look at others Often you do scratch your head, saying, "You know, there's there's just so much untapped potential there. Like that's what we should tackle first and foremost." So I agree with you totally there that there's, I think there's still a lot of room for um, a lot of farms to to grow more of their own quality homegrown feed as as a big influence of profit before they start intensifying or or increasing cow number and buying that feed from someone else. I, I think that. The fundamental used to be, uh, and I don't think it's changed that much for years, when a cow went into a paddock and directly grazed feed, um, that was relatively cheap. The moment that feed has gotta be cut, conserved, put in a pit, covered, there's losses through shrinkage, then it's gotta be presented back out to the cow, um, quite often mixed. Um, I think it'd be scary, the amount of cost that you add to that feed. And so I I think there are farmers that quite rightly struggle with, one of the biggest questions that most farmers face is given the resources that I've got, how many cows should I milk? Um, I like to challenge people with that question saying, I think cow number is by far is the biggest risk factor on any farm. I'll just give you a quick example. I might be milking 250 cows, and everything's going along tickety-boo, if I buy another ten cows, last time I checked, I'm I now need to find another ten times six ton. So to me, that's that's a massive change um, to my system, and it's exposed me to a lot more feed. We often so you're talking about focussed- an extra sixty
0: ton of feed there, Phil. So you're saying a cow will eat about six ton a year. So you've brought an extra ten cows into that two hundred and fifty cow hypothetical farm. It's now two sixty. So, so somewhere you need to find an extra 60 tonnes of feed, all other things being equal. That's right.
1: So to me, quite often we, we talk about mixer wagons and feeding and things like that, and, and we miss the main focus, which is the cow itself. So I only mentioned 10 cows, Rory. Um, if the average farmer's got um, 300 cows in their herd and they increase by 10%, that's 30 cows. 30 times 6, what's that, 180 tonnes? So now I've got to find another 180 tonnes. So often we talk about, should I feed one more or one less kilo as you know the holy grail? To me, that's a core skill. That's like treating mastitis. You've just got to be able to do that. And if you can't, a little plug worry. If you can't um, go and do a feeding pastures for profit course, whether you're a grazing based farmer or an intense farmer using a mixer wagon, there's some knowledge and skill in there that's, that's all about understanding that you as the farm owner and operator can, measure and quantify whether you should feed one more kilo to each cow each day when we're talking about systems theory to me the risk is if i change cow number nothing changes around how i should go about feeding the last kilo because by definition nothing's changed in terms of how that cow that individual cow responds to the last kilo but if every time i put another cow on i've got to find another 6 ton for the year and possibly seven ton including waste and maybe more, that's the game changer. And one of the challenges with cows brewery is they're not that flexible. By the time seasonal conditions change and you scratch your chin and say, um, look, milk price is dropping a little bit, uh, feed price is going up, maybe I should milk a few less cows. There's a fair chance that you've already milked those cows through an inefficient period and you've read those extra calves and you've got the extra young stock out. So I think we need a really big focus on the impact of cow number, regardless of system. As you intensify, the cow number starts to drop away a little bit in our focus because we build a facility that can house a certain number of animals and we tend to stick to it and manage the volatility by hopefully, having stored feed over a number of years to average the cost down. So if I just go back and make sure I recapture, I think more farmers should have a really healthy debate within their discussion groups and business networks around what is the impact of cow number as a risk factor. We talk about milk price and we talk about grain price and we talk about weather, but I think a really sharp focus saying, cow number, it's a massive decision
0: I make each year. How do I know how many to milk? And again, I suppose the answer to that, and I'll just throw it out there, Phil, as, an op- as a potential, you know, all you can do is look at retrospective data in that case, you, because as Bill Malcolm said, nobody knows what the future holds. So uh, if you knew that it was going to be a really good year uh, for the next 12 months in, in that given hypothetical question, yeah, just ask there around how many cows you'd run, you would probably tend towards extra cows or if you knew it was, you know, the feed was going to be cheap and the milk price is going to be high. Um, but all of those Kind of projections or guesses come with an element of risk as well.
1: The risk element doesn't get discussed in balance, Rory. So um, there's there's upsides and downsides of everything. So if a farmer decides to intensify and milks extra cows and everything goes in their favour, so we get a really good milk price and good seasonal conditions to deliver cheap feed, they'll accelerate away and make big margins on more cows. Whereas the um, what what we might call a conservative farmer that's milking less cows, wants to stay grass-based and isn't exposed to buying much out of the marketplace, but they won't make as much profit in those years. But when it turns around and milk price drops and feed price goes up, then without any change to either system, the conservative farmer will do better. And so it's not one system's right and one's wrong. It's that whole challenge of um, what we would love would be a flexible system, Rui. but again, I come back to it saying, I, I think it's, it's really difficult to have what some would try and define as a flexible system. It can be flexible in terms of how we, how we purchase and use feed, but the real flexibility is in cow number. And as you've just described, it's really difficult to decide in advance. So uh, without knowing the future, It's hard to know how many cows you should milk, but with historic data, we can say, look, I, I milked an extra hundred cows last year. And now I brought in more feed than I did the previous year. And my average feed cost went up and my labor cost went up. Oh dear. I probably did the wrong thing. But by then we're into the next season.
0: You mentioned labor Phil there, something we haven't touched on, but obviously a very topical um, issue in the industry right now, given the shortage of labor and the, on availability effectively, of overseas uh, um, farm labour. Um, you know, as you intensify, you know, logic would say that you're probably going to need more labour on your farm or more staff. Um, that's another risk factor, isn't it, as well? That isn't really we haven't spoken about so far.
1: Um, yeah, and I think the jury's still out, Ruri, on whether as you intensify, labour cost becomes greater in that um, you know, cows have still got to be fed, they've still got to be milked, calves have got to be raised. So on a per cow basis, um, I think the intent systems mightn't actually be labour inefficient. Yeah, but
0: on an absolute basis, though, you're if you go from 300 cows to 600 cows, almost certainly you're going to have more staff on that farm than you had when you were 300 cows. So, so you still need to find that extra, you know, you might go from three staff to six staff for argument's sake.
1: Definitely, as as you grow, so as you increase scale, you're certainly gonna become more dependent on labour. I've always had a bit of a bugbear with with how we um, cost labour as an industry. I, I, maybe I've got this wrong, but uh, for many years, we had lots of smaller family farms and the biggest discrepancy in the true cost of labour was we asked farmers to impute their labour cost. And I think often to look more efficient than farms were, we, we understated what it really costs for labour. I think over the last um, decade, we, we, we've seen a, a fairly rapid increase in the cost of labour. And it's not just that the cost of labour is going up, I think it's also to do with the fact that more farms are actually paying labour. So we're, we're, we're actually starting to see the real cost of labour because there's only so far, the owner operator can impute their labour. And one other concern, Rui, is I, I do, it does take a lot, of, um, a lot of time to manage and organize a team. And so when you're a, a single owner operator, you get up in the morning and you don't have a team meeting and you don't have to meet with staff to tell them what to do. And you don't have to teach them how to do things as staff turn over, you just get up and do it. And you've probably done it for 40 or 50 years. So there, there is a real inherent efficiency. Um, as we start to employ more staff, at some stage you get to the point where there's almost a full-time or a part-time job, just organising the staff that you've got. So I think there are there are some inefficiencies, but I don't think there's a real difference in terms of whether you stay a grazing farmer or you move to becoming um, an intensive farmer with house cows. I'm, I'm yet to be convinced that there would be a big difference in labour efficiency.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's probably more of a, a scaling up thing. Maybe I've misinterpreted that a little bit then as opposed to switching from uh, Switching the feeding system or the feeding or the farm system, um, you know it, it's still very related to the absolute amount of cow numbers that that you're that you're milking. As you said, um, uh, another question, Phil, that often is tossed around is the skill level and the management of of these different farm systems. I suppose you know you have the more traditional farm system, which, you know, some would argue is a bit more straightforward to. Uh, to manage. And it's probably something people, you know, the majority of the, of the industry is more used to, but do you think that's a factor, um, you know, and how important is good management even on all systems?
1: Good management's number one, isn't it really? Like um, you can know, have the best system in the world um, and without good management, it's it, it, won't, it won't be the system. It'll actually be how it's run. So um, there's no way around good management. Um, in, in terms of comparing systems, uh, Technically, you would think that uh, if I just compared two systems, and I'll, I'll just define them quickly, one is a, a, a grazing-based farmer, maybe in Gippsland, that, that the cows go out to grass almost all days of the year versus someone who's moved towards, say, Northern Vic, where they might graze for half of the year, but the other half, they're, they're in an area where they're they're basically being fed their feed. I, I, I would I would still think that the, the level of management skill required or the grazing-based farmer is higher. I think they're still dealing with the elements. They're still making a lot of daily decisions about how to respond to the conditions. Whereas, if you've got half of the year where you've you've got your feed stockpile and you've got your machinery and you've got your feeding area, I think it's much easier to predict and be repeatable. Whether that
0: so you're kind of almost described a Western Australian farming system there, Phil, showing a bit of is? because he used to work over there as well but um it's the, the you know where you very very strict seasonal definition of of grazed from i don't know may till november most years and then you know that every year from december to april you're going to be feeding out 100 and there's going to be no grazed feed available so you're saying if you know that's going to happen and you can reliably predict that year in year out that's almost easier than if you're grazing 100% of the year.
1: It just seems logical to me, Rui, that that's, that would be simpler. I'm, I'm not saying that you, know, that, that you have to be a smarter farmer to be a grazing-based farmer, but when, when you just work through the logical decisions that they face, I know a number of farmers that are going down the intensive path, and one of, one of their um, key drivers is um, getting away from trying to manage the volatility of the weather. You know, it's it's become really wet today. Where am I going to put these cows? How am I going to fix that pasture up afterwards? They're going to come into the dairy all muddy. So lots of those things that are really hard to control. Um, by moving to housing, they can remove some of those. Um, and and as I said, it's not it's not saying one needs to be smarter than the other, but it's just the thinking on your feet and the planning. Technically, when you're in a grazing-based system, dealing with the weather is is more complex than going to a feed bunker with the mixer wag and having getting some good advice on what i should put in it today and where i should feed it
0: yeah and i think i've heard i've heard farmers who are at the more extreme end of the intensive approach which is like a tmr freestyle barn type operation say that it's actually a pretty simple system to manage once it's up and running because every day is effectively the same and you're you you have removed all of those volatilities that you just described there are those those potential um, areas of, of hidden kind of nasty surprises. That, you know, you hope you on a really intensive system where you're trying to maximise output per cow, it's just every day is the same and consistency is the name of the game, which which they would argue is simpler. It's it's simpler on that front,
1: Ruri, and, and you, you certainly should have, in theory, more control. Um, what you don't have is the capital that you had to spend to get that control, and that's I think that's at the number of it all is um, it's interesting working with people that are considering intensification and you start with the, you know, a rough figure of a couple of hundred bucks a cow for a feeding area, then a house cows and, and the number escalates. And to me, the biggest risk is um, you can't undo that decision. So let's say you've got a family farm and you decide that we going to intensify and you, you move towards uh, a lot of concrete in a barn. In five years time, if you think I don't quite think this system is working the way it is, it's really, really difficult to shut that down and go back to doing what you're doing. I think we've seen a little bit of um, over the last decade, I think we've seen people go down um, the path of intensifying their feeding system in terms of the definition that they've invested a lot of capital in feeding areas and infrastructure um, that And not by their own fault but they've probably invested a lot of capital and then fallen on harder times in terms of milk price and seasonal conditions for producing feed and timing wasn't right for them so um, their their option was only one option which is to sell out which I think is quite sad is you just get timing wrong Um, and I think some farmers have taken that opportunity to buy someone else's capital at a much cheaper rate and I think that that's um makes it much easier to justify moving down that path if someone else has already taken the risk
0: of investing the capital if the people who might have you know the more higher the the systems that require a big investment of capital in them and they're doing it for i don't know 10 years 15 years they might have a plan for 20 years even at some point they will you know i imagine want to draw their capital back out of that system and cash it out um you think that's going to be more difficult or is more difficult across the spectrum of systems from the more extensive grazing system through to the housed barren systems?
1: Uh, that's the $42 billion question, isn't it, Ruri? Um, just as an, a little example, um, um I'm lucky enough to, to do a fair bit of work in northeast Victoria and land price over there has become... Uh, prohibitive from an, an agricultural point of view if you sit down with a farmer looking at buying some land next door and they might have to pay 15 or twenty thousand an acre um, it really is they become an investor in land because um, when you pay that kind of money um, the feed can't be cheap so um, on, on that basis if you're looking towards a future going well in in 20 years time I think I might retire and sell the farm to invest in intensifying now I've got a feeling that um you're most likely going to sell the farm to someone who's not interested in the facility you've put on it. So you need to have got the full value of that capital back out in your operating career because there's a chance that at the end of it someone doesn't want it. Um, and there is a risk that as more people intensify and farms get bigger, um, we, we we see the trend that we have seen which is a which is um, a fairly significant variation in milk price from those who are producing flatter milk to those who are out the smaller farm with seasonal milk. Um, I'm not gonna get into that. John Mulvaney's covered that in detail, but um, yeah. th- there is a risk that as there's more of those larger farmers, maybe they start competing with each other and cutting
0: their throats a little bit, I hope not. Do you, think, do you foresee anything that could halt that or prevent that kind of slight trend towards more, more intensity? Um,
1: Well, certainly uh, milk price or any type of policy would pull that up, Ruri, so milk price is definitely the the bigger one. Um, Just from my own experience, if I sit down with a farmer and they say to me, um, I feel like we've had a fundamental change in milk price and the days of $5 are gone, I see a $7 price, it's certainly much, much easier to justify intensification and growth. but it wouldn't take much change in milk price to stop that growth again. So we talked about Bill Malcolm earlier and about the future, we simply do not know. Ruri, if I knew, um, I'll probably be a rich man because I would have acted on the power of hindsight. Um, My my feeling is that um, that, that there is more of the smaller farmers dropping out um, and a shrinking milk volume Um, And although that's bad, um, it also creates opportunities for those farmers left still producing milk for uh, I would hope a higher price. Um, In terms of where systems go, Ruri, I just hope that every individual farmer takes a lot of time to consider where their future is rather than go to a fancy field day and see someone with a big barn or um, read some propaganda about how much milk someone's getting per cow. I really hope that any farmer that's gonna go down that path at least sits down with a few of their peers and has a really good discussion about, um, what is it that I'm about to do that I can't undo? Because anything that can be undone is not a concern, but something that can't be undone, like investment in a big chunk of concrete or a shed or something like that, they're the ones that you you may regret later on. So they're the ones- Yeah, we're not
0: saying, of course, that that isn't the right thing to do in, in many cases you may do your homework as you just described and realize that the investment is the correct thing to do, um, you know, based on the knowledge that we have at hand at the moment. Um, But what you're just pleading with farmers is to make sure you make those kind of decisions as thoroughly and as carefully as you can. That's right. Make, make it a a clear
1: decision, strategic decision to go down that path rather than it's a, it's a tweak. And at the moment, I think the industry has got a, a real risk of tweaks, as it normally does, when you're in a purple patch. Um, not only does the world look so much better and the glass is three-quarter full, but most farmers are cashed up, so they've got money looking for a home. So it is an easy time to justify um, some kind of upgrade. Um, but it's it's very hard to look back and say three or four years ago, when there was a milk price drop, you know, if I had have done what I'm about to do, might I regret it? And I'm not being a A negative or a naysayer, um, I'm more than comfortable, as I said, I see more Northern Vic farmers going down the path of having specific feeding facilities and potentially mixer wagons to make the most of the feed sources that they'll have and to deal with the volatility of feast to famine that we'll have in either homegrown feed or water to produce feed for their farms. So. It's just about doing the homework and talking to your peers and people you trust. one thing we haven't talked much about Ruri is the whole debate of production per cow, you know, per cow production. And I just (laughs) stay right, I stay way out of that with the intensive systems because if the reason why you're going into an intensive system is about production per cow, I think you've lost it. We still don't have a clear industry data set that says production per cow is directly and clearly linked to profit. But the ratio of the cost of feed to the price for milk is a fundamental, and so when people are going down that path, it's really important they keep thinking about where where do I think milk price is going into the future.
0: I think it was nice to uh, get your thoughts on production per cow, Phil. I know, I know, uh, we've had plenty of uh, good uh, discussion on it over the over the years, but uh, I think it it is something that does tend to get farmers very. Um, interested and passionate about. I've seen many a heated debate amongst farmers over production per cow. But as you said, there are not probably many huge data sets that directly correlate production per cow with profit in a given system. Although you would argue it does make logical sense, would you say that in those very intensive systems where you are trying to maximize the output of the cow, that achieving the high feed conversion efficiency and high production per cow is, is really important driver and is quite well linked to um, making that system pay its way yeah it's essential so once you've invested that capital
1: and you've got the ability to mix those feeds and control the cow's environment I think it is essential so to me it's no longer a debate the the bit I like to keep reminding people about is um, the, the, the key skill that a farmer needs is to know when to stop so when you're feeding I've not yet seen a cow where the most critical question around feeding is, um, should I feed one more kilo? So farmers have control over that. So regardless whether I've got a big thumping Holstein herd that's doing 50 litres, um, there there will be a point at which one more kilo makes no more money. There's a physical limit to what cows can eat. It just happens by default, Rory, that um, in grazing based systems, most times, um, a higher proportion of the diet will be forage-based and that'll potentially limit intake, but that's a cheaper source of feed. Once you move into the house system, most of those farmers, unless I've got it wrong, most farmers will, will be providing a, a really well-balanced diet. It'll be chopped properly. And so their, their intake limit will be much higher. The The killer with that one is the cost of every one of those units of feed has gone up. So... Yep. I always love that discussion, Ruri, about um, intents and how to feed cows. I still think that all cows uh, fundamentally need to be fed the same way, which is they should be fed to the point at which they're technically full. Because once cows start wasting feed, I've never seen a cow with a kilogram of feed in front of her that she hasn't consumed, produce more milk. It's such a fundamental that often gets overlooked, you know, even if you're not a grazing based farmer, there's some gems in that feeding pastures for profit program. It should just be called feeding for profit, Ruri, because it's really about understanding all those risks of feed cost in proportion to milk price. And I think over time we'll probably adapt that program to make sure all those fundamentals of profit also fit nicely with someone considering intensification because it's still the same key drivers of profit. What does my feed cost in proportion to what I get back out for it?
0: yeah exactly uh, i think that's a good way to kind of finish up there phil you know we we don't mind a, a, an endorsement every now and again on, on this podcast and um <laughs> profit is as good as any um a really good program and you can get it through your local uh, uh regional development program or, or extension officer and uh, register to do it any farmer in the country effectively you know so um yeah um thanks uh very much phil i think that was a really good discussion and you have captured some really good um um aspects there so thank you very much for your time thank you very thanks to phil and thanks to all the guests we've had over the first 58 dairy pot episodes clearly from listening just there phil's passion for the industry and desire for farmers to be successful and make the right decisions is as strong as the melbourne demons second half performance in the recent afl grand final As I said earlier, we started off with John Mulvaney as the first guest and to book in that with Phil was fantastic. I felt he highlighted some great nuggets of information for all farmers to consider during that discussion, not least that Feeding for Pasture for Profit course that we referred to, FPFP as it's known for short. If you are interested in this course, you can register your interest with your local Dairy Australia RDP. I might be biased as a feed-based and pasture management enthusiast and DA, but I reckon it's a course that has been shown many times to contribute strongly towards transforming the profit of many dairy farms, if the principles of good pasture management are implemented properly. For first-hand evidence of this, look no further than podcast 34 of Dairy Pod, one of our most popular episodes actually, where New South Wales farmer Justin Walsh described the contribution of doing FPFP course towards improving his farm profitability over time. Well, that's it for this podcast. As I said, it's been a privilege to be a part of DairyPod over the last few years and get the chance to interview some of the brightest minds in the industry that we have had on this show. There are still plenty great topics in the pipeline for discussion in the coming months on this channel, so stay tuned. As always, you can subscribe or catch up on previous episodes on the usual channels, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and indeed on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening everyone, and I hope we meet all again somewhere down the track.